and it's lit. <laughs> Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Nadine. Her name's Nadine. Happy birthday to you. Make a wish. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that I founded in April 2015 at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our October 15, 2019 event, which featured Carly Moore, Josephine Rowe, and Sofia Stefanovich. Now, at our events before the readings, I do ask each of our readers to share a brief anecdote about Queens because we are super proud to be an event that takes place in the literary borough of Queens, New York. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode of the podcast. And now let's get started with our readings with our first reader, Sophia Stefanovich. And <clears throat> we're just going to kick in, kick in, kick in, kick in, kick into gear with our first reader. All right. The first reader is going to be Sophia Stefanovich. <clears throat> no, no, no. Sophia Stefanovich is a Serbian-Australian writer. Serbian-Australian writer and storyteller based in Manhattan. Her memoir, Miss Ex-Yugoslavia, right here, the yellow, beautiful book in the middle, um, is a sometimes funny, sometimes dark story about being an immigrant kid during the Yugoslavian wars. She hosts This Alien Nation, a monthly celebration of immigration at Joe's Pub. She's a regular storyteller with The Moth, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times, among other places. Uh, Kirker's Review said of Miss Ex-Yugoslavia that her stories show the ways in which war warps the lives of generations, even those who never witnessed violence firsthand, and that it's a fresh and timely perspective on the immigrant experience. And then I found this uh, um, review from an independent bookstore in Melbourne. Is it re Readings? Is that right? You know, because... I hate to break it to you guys, but we've got another Aussie in the house, so it's very, very Australian here tonight. I'm very excited about that. Um, but I love this. Um, it was from, it's a review from a bookseller, which I think is like the best review you can get. From, I love that. It's really cool. Um, it calls uh, Miss Ex-Yugoslavia in a deeply funny, self-deprecating tone. Stefanovic is not afraid to describe in graphic detail the trials of womanhood, of puberty, of first loves and first rejections, and of struggling to be understood and to understand your own place in the world. Let's help Sophia understand her place at the LIC Reading Series by giving her warm applause. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you very much for inviting me, Catherine. Um, my name is Sophia Stefanovic, and this is my book, Miss Ex Yugoslavia. Um, do you mind if I move that just like that? Okay. So, uh, my Queen's anecdote. Don't worry, I know I, I have it. Um, I was thinking about Queens and uh, one thing that I, obviously I had heard of Queens before I moved to New York six years ago and one of the things that you hear about uh, Queens is that basically everyone from the former Yugoslavia lives in Queens. In fact, there are several of us here tonight. I was thrilled um, to find out. But when I was cut to, when I was giving birth two years ago on the Upper West Side at Mount Sinai, um, I felt very strange because I was in this city that I didn't know. I'm 
originally from Serbia, grew up in Australia, and I was in this kind of not that pleasant hospital birth experience. And after I had given birth, I kind of like went into this room that I was about to share with someone else. And I had these little, um, I brought with me something called smoky, which are these little salty um, snacks that we eat and that I grew up on. And I mentioned them, possibly the reading I'm doing also has them in it. I like them a lot. And so I was kind of lying there and I was eating these things um, and my newborn son was lying in a little thing next to me. And they brought in this other woman who had just given birth, but she was even more like out of it than me because she was coming out of a C-section and she was kind of mumbling and the nurse was being nice to her and she was like, oh, and, and where are you from? And the woman was like, Bosnia. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. So they put her down and then they put the – curtain in between us and then we like opened the curtain and started speaking in our language because the languages of ex-Yugoslavia are similar Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian. So we started talking and I was like oh would you like some smoky and she's like I have my own smoky that I got <laughs> and she just got it at like a store in Queens and you can't really get it anyway so I, I really love that. So she uh, had gone to like uh, just a grocery store in Queens and I had gone online and both of us had got these like snacks from our childhood and uh, yes, gave birth uh, as immigrants in New York. So that's my little queen story. All right. Oh, it's quite warm next to the fire. I'm glad I was going to wear a turtleneck. I'm really glad that didn't happen. I'm going to roll this up. Okay. So this is the very beginning. So the whole book, it's like um, basically it's a coming of it. The first chapter, this is the prologue I'm going to read from, but the first chapter is like my birth which I remembered and wrote down for you. And then it goes through up until I'm this. So it starts with a flash forward. So I'm going to read to you basically what happens towards the end of the book. And then if you, towards the end of, sorry, the narrative, but the book starts with it. You know, like in films when you see what happens. In, yeah, it was very clever. I had to explain it to you. All right. Prologue. Uh, and I'm going to look at my watch because I haven't timed this. Princess of Disaster. I wouldn't normally enter a beauty pageant, but this one is special. It's a battle for the title of Miss X Yugoslavia, beauty queen of a country that no longer exists. It is due to the country being no more that our shoddy little contest is happening in Australia, over 8,000 miles from where Yugoslavia once stood. My fellow competitors and I are immigrants and refugees coming from different sides of the conflict that split Yugoslavia up. It's a weird idea for a competition, bringing young women from a war-torn country together to be objectified, but in our little diaspora, we're used to contradictions. It's 2005, I'm 22, and I have been living in Australia for most of my life. I'm at Joy, an empty Melbourne nightclub that smells of stale smoke and is located above a fruit and vegetable market. I open the door to the dressing room, and when my eyes adjust to the fluorescent lights, I see that young women are rubbing olive oil on each other's thighs. Apparently, this is a trick used in real competitions, one we have hijacked for our amateur version. For weeks, I've been preparing myself to stand almost naked in front of everyone I know, and it's come around quick. As I scan the shiny bodies for my friend Nina, I'm dismayed to see that all the other girls have dead straight hair, while mine, thanks to an overzealous hairdresser with a curling wand, looks like a wig made of sausages. Doji Lutko, which means come here, doll, Nina says as she emerges from the crowd of girls. Maybe we can straighten it. 
She brings her hand up to my hair cautiously, as if petting a startled lamb. Nina is a Bosnian refugee in a miniskirt. As a contestant, she is technically my competitor, but we've become close in the rehearsals leading up to the pageant. Under Nina's tentative pets, the hair does not give. It's been sprayed to stay like this, possibly forever. I shift uncomfortably and tug on the hem of my skirt, trying to pull it lower. Just like the hair, it does not budge. In my language, such micro skirts have earned their own graphic term, dopichnyak, which literally means to the pussy, a precise term to distinguish the dopichnyak from its more conservative subgenital cousin, the miniskirt. Though several of us barely speak our mother tongue, all of us competitors are ex-Yugos, for better or worse. We come from Bosnia, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia and Slovenia. As it was then, there's been more since. (laughs) I join a conversation in which Yugo girls are yelling over one another in slang-riddled English, recalling munching on the salty peanut snack smoky when when they were little, agreeing that it was the bomb and totally sick superior to anything one might find in our adoptive home of Australia. The idea of a beauty pageant freaks me out, and ex-Yugoslavia as a country is itself an oxymoron, but the combination of the two makes the deliciously weird Miss Ex-Yugoslavia competition the ideal subject for my documentary film class. I feel like a double agent. Yes, I am part of the ex-Yugo community, but also I am a cynical, story-hungry, Western-schooled film student, and so I have gone undercover among my own people. I know my community is strange, and I want to get top marks for this exclusive glimpse within. Though I've been deriding the competition to my film student friends, rolling my eyes at the ironies, I have to admit that this pageant and its resurrection of my zombie country is actually poking at something deep. If I'm honest with myself, I'm not just a filmmaker seeking a story. This is my community. I want outsiders to see the human face of ex-Yugoslavia because it's my face and the face of these girls. We're more than news reports about war and ethnic cleansing. Who prefers to speak English to the camera? I ask the room in English, whipping my sausage-curled head around (laughs) as my college classmate Maggie points the camera at the other contestants backstage. Me, most of the girls say in chorus. So what's your opinion of ex-Yugoslavia? I ask Zora, the 17-year-old from Montenegro. Um, I don't know, she says. It's complicated, someone else calls out. As a filmmaker, I want a neat soundbite. But ex-Yugoslavia is unwieldy. Most of my fellow contestants are confused about the turbulent history of the region, and it's not easy to explain in a nutshell. At the very least, I want viewers to understand what brought us here. The wars that consumed the 1990s, whose main players were Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina, the three largest republics within the Yugoslav Federation. Like many families, mine left when the wars began, And like the rest of the Miss Ex-Yugoslavia competitors, I was only a kid. Despite the passage of time, being part of an immigrant minority in Australia, speaking Serbian at home, being all too familiar with Dorpichnyaks, I am embedded in the Ex-Yugoslavian community. Yugoslavia, with with its miniskirt-wearing, war-prone people, has weighed upon me my whole life. Most of these young women moved to Australia either as immigrants seeking a better life, like my family who came from Serbia, or as refugees fleeing the effects of war, like the Croatian and Bosnian girls. 
Why are you competing for Miss Ex Yugoslavia? I prod Zora. That's where I come from, she says, looking down like I'm a demanding school teacher, and my parents want me to. In the student film I'm making, I plan to contextualize the footage of the Miss Ex Yugoslavia competition with my own story. I put together some home footage of me in Belgrade before we moved to Australia. The footage shows me, aged two, in a blue terry cloth romper handed down from my cousins. I'm in front of our scruffy building on the Boulevard of Revolution, posing proudly on the hood of my parents' tiny red Fiat, with my little legs crossed like a glamorous grown-up's. To accompany these scenes, I've inserted voiceover narration, which says, The Belgrade I left is still my home. I was born there, and I plan to die there. But really, though I like the dramatic way this sounds, I'm not sure it's true. Would I really go back to that poor, corrupt, dirty place now that English comes easier to me than Serbian? I'm quick to tell anyone who asks that I find beauty pageants stupid and that I'm competing for the sake of journalism. However, I am still a human living in the world and I would like to look hot. (laughs) I've had my body waxed. I've been taught how to walk down a runway and I've eaten nothing except celery and tuna for weeks in the desperate hope that it will reduce my cellulite. I've replaced my nerdy glasses with contacts and I'm the fittest I've been in my life. A secret, embarrassed little part of me that always wanted to be a princess is fluttering with hope. I've reverted to childhood habits of craving attention and for a second I forget all the things I dislike about my appearance. As I observe my fake tanned, shiny body in the mirror and smile with my whitened teeth, I think, what if somehow, some way, I actually win Miss X Yugoslavia? I allow myself to dream for a moment about being a crowned princess, like the ones in the Disney tapes my dad would get for me on the black market in socialist Yugoslavia. Thank you. Thank you. One more round of applause for Sophia. On whose last name I gave the wrong syllable the accent. I did the chub, but I did. I said Stefanovic, and you Stefanovic. All right. Well, I want to get it right. Um, it's a really wonderful book. It's uh, it it covers such a wide range of emotions, and I kind of love that you told like kind of a, a birth story for your queen story. And then your book opens with the birth story, which by the way, maybe we can talk about this in the panel, but you do have very detailed information about the, when you were born in there. That is a uh, quite, quite fun to read in a way. Um, so thank you for starting us off. That was great. All right. <clears throat> Carly Moore making her second appearance at the series guys. Very exciting. Carly Moore. Carly Moore is the author of the novel The Not Wives, which is over here, lovely. The essay collection 16 Pills, the poetry chapbook Portal Poem, and the young adult novel The Stalker Chronicles. Her work has appeared in the American Poetry Review, Brainchild, The Brooklyn Rail, The Journal of Popular Culture, and other publications. She is a clinical professor of writing and contemporary culture and creative production in the Global Liberal Studies Program at New York University. Do you teach everything? Yeah, wow. And a senior associate at Bard College's Institute for Writing and Thinking. She lives in New York City. Not in Queens, but in New York City. 
You have lived in Queens, and we might hear about that. Maybe we might hear about that. Um, the Notwives has a starred Kirkus review. Kirkus review says it's written with a keen ear for dialogue and an exceptional eye for detail, and is a showcase for the everyday reality of working class intellectuals living in an increasingly gentrified city. I think we can all relate to this because we're all intellectuals, and the city is indeed gentrifying. And then Jalen Corell in the Independent Book Review says. Feminist Press has done it again with another book club worthy piece, y'all. It doesn't say y'all, but I added that. I think it, The Not Wives does a brilliant job at deconstructing adult relationships outside of the commitment of marriage. Coming to the commitment of LSE reading series. And wow us with your words, Carly Moore. Ah, uh, so. Well, I did live in Astoria for, I think, three years, but that's not my story. My, my story is more recent. Uh, I um, went to a Greek restaurant on Ditmars, and it, I can't remember the name. It starts with a TZ, and it's like a traditional, amazing Greek restaurant, and they have you know fresh fish every day and a tomato and onion salad, and I had an amazing meal. And they give you free pudding at the end, like the pudding is just free, which I think is amazing. And, but the the real star of that restaurant was the waiter. Uh, he I he's so amazing that I put him in my novel in progress that I'm working on. He's bald. He had several earrings. He had um, you know standard kind of white shirt and and black pants but just his delivery of all the food was like to sort of drop it on the table <laughs> but with flair and it all it all landed perfectly and um yeah i just i i set a scene from the novel in this restaurant and i got so taken with the waiter that i thought you know he might have to become a much bigger character so thank you astoria for your amazing greek restaurants and greek waiters <laughs> How's everybody? Okay. So I'm going to read from the beginning, and then I'm going to read one of the interch. There's these little sort of in-between ch chapters. So the book follows three women. Stevie's the protagonist, um, and you'll hear from her in this first part. And then she has a best friend, Mel who's a polyamorous bartender who's trying to open up her relationship with her wife. Um, and then there's a, a homeless girl named Johanna who they meet in the park. And this all sort of centers around Occupy Wall Street, 2011. Do you remember Occupy? It was a good, a good idea. <laughs> Your mascot. Perhaps fucking was a roadmap for those of us who no longer believed in directions. Or maybe it was just another way to get lost. If nothing else, it got me free drinks and a bedroom-wide view into the apartments, bars, and neighborhoods of a new New York, one that was building glass condos next to brick housing projects, replacing bookstores with 24-hour gyms, offering its homeless cash incentives to leave the city, and opening stores so fancy I sometimes couldn't tell what they were selling. Um, is this a cafe or a barber shop? Do you sell fedoras or honey made from Brooklyn rooftop bees? Both? Great. Where were those mythical rent-controlled one-bedrooms in South Williamsburg, and how much did they cost? 
How do people find curtains big enough for those giant green glass windows of their new co-op apartments? What was it like to walk the quiet night streets of bed after getting spanked hard by a man who called himself a wolf? Were there actually any single men still living in Park Slope? Did a father of three who had a studio in the same building as his ex and kids and who was starting a digital media firm have time for a girlfriend? How would you describe the decor of a railroad apartment in Red Hook shared by three men in their 40s? Was the owner of that organic hair salon really as crazy on a date as the lesbian network said she was? South first between Hooper and Grand, $914. The internet. Exhilarating. A couple, but they were teenage boys living with their parents. No, but he kept trying. Bench press, ticket stub, beer cup, early modern. Crazier. Fucking, it turned out, was still the most reliable way to split myself in two, especially since I'd mostly given up on drugs, and good fucking was the closest to unlocking the doors of perception as I thought I might get. The orgasm's rush of dopamine opened me up, gave me purpose. Sometimes while riding some stranger's cock, I imagined myself stepping out of my body like a person out of a mascot suit where I was fake cheering for my life. Like every indie girl who grew up in the 90s, I took a lot of acid and still smoked pot whenever someone offered it to me. But those tripping days were over. I was afraid of the psychic revelations I might have on acid, and I couldn't bear the time commitment, the stomach ache, the jaw-clenching come down, so I fucked to better see myself. Even when the fucking was bad, I saw important things that my body kept secret from my brain, which was too busy lesson planning or writing sentences for a revealing personal essay or keeping track of the week's obligations on a giant Staples wall calendar that I stashed in a drawer because its paperness made me feel old. Sometimes I saw that I was actually quite sad or that I was, in fact, very drunk. Sometimes I believe that the extreme tilt of an Avenue A sidewalk was a bad metaphor for how the city was trying to slough me off. And like most renters and artists and teachers, I could fall right off the side of it and wind up in New Jersey or Long Island or Westchester if I wasn't careful. Sometimes I understood that it was time to go home and clean the kitchen and to vacuum up the sequins my daughter had sprinkled over the forest in her room. Other times I saw that I liked myself after all these years, and so I could actually bear to disentangle my limbs from that smoky bearded man who'd grown up in Bay Ridge and was a bartender without any dreams, and walk home in the middle of the sweaty night and eat pasta over the sink at 2 a.m. and feel just fine about it. Because there are found objects along forgotten paths, because a pilgrimage is a journey with its own sacred rituals, because I believed in walking on my own, because I no longer understood the complex algorithms and intimacies of couples, because I had broken my home, because it had turned out this way, because one day I looked up from the couch and he was gone. And then I'm going to read this little... There are these little chapters that look sort of different. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'll just let you listen. I don't want to... I don't know how to describe them. The wives. The wives were at work. 
they had jobs in publishing and marketing. One wife was a doctor, another was a lawyer. The wives were stay-at-home moms. The wives were tired. The wives were so busy and so bored and all at the same time. They worked their co-op shifts and they started co-op nursery schools. The wives were curious about the lives of other wives. The wives did not care about other wives. The wives wanted a different apartment or they wanted new tile in the bathroom. They definitely wanted laundry in the building if they couldn't have it in the apartment. Some wives wanted to move to Maplewood. The wives complained on the playground, mostly by the sandbox and at the kitty swings. There was something about the repetitive motion that lulled them into revealing things. The wives had picnics in the park with their children on blankets with cut-up fruit. They put sunscreen on everything. They loved an outdoor concert and a glass of rosé. They demanded brunch. The wives were surprisingly fit, although most of them felt fat. Some wives were 15 to 20 pounds overweight. The wives had their dreams. The wives were writing it all down in notebooks or on the backs of receipts. A lot of the wives were writers who didn't make any money or teachers who made a little bit of money. Some of the wives were rich. They had trust funds or inheritances or parents who gave them down payments and cars and tuition for private elementary schools. The wives had their dreams. The wives loved their husbands, but they had crushes on their therapists or their baristas or one of the stay-at-home dads at or the artisanal cheese vendor from upstate who they saw at the farmer's market on Saturdays. <laughs> Some of the wives were queer and missed their girlfriends. The wives were shy. The wives just couldn't shut up. The wives were on BuzzFeed or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever. The wives had their own stash of porn. Some of it was still on DVDs. It was private. Some wives were worried all of the time about vaccines and benchmarks and climate change. The Climate change, the wives did yoga and Pilates. It was never enough. The wives wanted another baby. The wives were infertile. The wives did not have babies, but they thought they should. The wives were at home. Some were at bars. They had their suspicions, but they kept them quiet. Thank you. Thank you. One more big round of applause for Carly Moore. These, uh, is the word interstitial chapters? Yes. These interstitial chapters about the wives are actually very, they're just like, they're so good. These like little short things where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, mm. <laughs> And the whole book is kind of like that. It's also very sexy, which is great. So like, it's very dirty. Carly wants you to know. Uh, all right, next up on the docket is Josephine Rowe. Stefanovich? Stefanovich? Rowe. Rowe. Rowey? Just Rowe. Okay. Josephine Rowe was born in 1984 in Rockhampton, Australia. Australia. Australia again. Yeah. Wait, is anyone else here from Australia? No, so... Well, I mean, you get both, all right. <laughs> okay. Josephine Rowe was born in 1984 in Rockhampton, Australia, and grew up in Melbourne. In the United States, her writing has appeared in Timothy McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, the Iowa Review, the Paris Review Daily, the Common, and Freeman's. She holds fellowships from the Wallace Stegner Program in Fiction at Stanford University, the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa, the OMI International Arts Center, and Yaddo. She was the winner of Australia's Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize in 2016 and has been named one of the Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Australian Novelists. Did they do a special thing for you to, like, celebrate that? 
I hope. I mean, did they have like a ceremony or like breakfast or something? Cup. It's like a what? A paddle? Oh, a panel. Okay, that's cupcakes. Oh, all right. Well, congratulations, Josephine. Her debut novel, A Loving Faithful Animal, was long listed for the 2017 Miles Franklin Literary Award and selected as a New York Times editor's choice. Her story collection, Here Until August, look at this beautiful, ooh, let's hold it up. Ooh. Okay, what was I saying about it, though? No, I... I want to. Oh, it was it's just been published by Catapult like 1 week ago it came out, right? Yes. 1 week ago. So you're in the you're like you came here just for us from Australia, right? Yeah, just for us. Starred Kirker's review for here until August um says Roe is a writer of great subtlety. And what could, in lesser hands, be quiet stories from familiar emotional landscapes become revelatory here. Who doesn't like a revelatory book? Rose shape-shifting, capturing the nuances of different nationalities effortlessly is almost as remarkable as the precise, delicate, and frequently witty prose. We all know when something seems effortless, it probably means this person worked their ass off and is like really dedicated, wonderful writer. Um, just FYI, you know that. And Publishers Weekly agrees, while the characters' predicaments are often familiar, Rose's fiercely idiosyncratic ways of describing, I'm going to say that word again, fiercely idiosyncratic. Fiercely idiosyncratic ways of describing scenes will seize and hold the reader's attention. Are you guys ready? Are you sure? Did you have enough cupcakes? No, Carl has never had enough cupcakes. We don't need cupcakes. We got Josephine Rowe. Let's give it up. All right. Thank you for having me. Um, I have to confess, I was very, um, I was very nervous and a little bit guilty about my um, my Queens anecdote because I'm not from here and I haven't spent much time in Queens. And mostly, my affiliation with Queens is is JFK after a twenty hour-long flight, um, the upside of which there's like a man with flowers and a pickup truck who like meets me at the airport and, and that's really nice. Um, but uh, I, I was so kind of nervous about it that I tried to outsource to proper New Yorkers for a good Queen's anecdote. And so I had like great stories about kind of like golden gloves tournaments in Elks clubs in the early thousands and uh, art galleries, which are actually just somebody's apartment on the third floor of a building, except not really, just their lounge room, and not really their lounge room either, just a cat gymnasium with art around the cat gymnasium. And I thought about stealing these, but I, uh, I yeah. My, my queen's anecdote <laughs> is that uh, earlier in the year, I came to the LAC reading series. <laughs> And uh, the guy at the bar, I ordered a, a gin with soda, and there was no room for soda, just like tonight, and that's good. Uh, and I put a question in the magic silver box, and I won this tiny plastic raccoon, and it was awesome. And it still lives, uh, it still lives on my desk in Melbourne, and so I think about queens every day. <laughs> the end.
Okay, this is, um, I'm going to read the start of a story called The Once Drowned Man because it's set in, in New York or in upstate New York with somebody trying to get north of New York and then some. The once drowned man hailed me from outside the county courthouse. He was trailing a little blue and leather suitcase. I figured it held legal documents or some such, but the fact was I saw him standing there at 2 a.m., and though he wore a suit, he did not strike me as the, as the solicitorial type. The suit was very nicely cut, though even I could tell it was a decade outdated, and also a little disheveled, with the shirt open at the collar. A button was off. I wondered whether he might have been the defendant in an important case that day and spent some hours trying to console himself in some rat nest or other, but his breath did not smell of drinking. At first, he only wanted to go as far as Lloyd's, pick up a few things, use the phone. Lloyd's then bed, he told me. I left the meter running. Then while he was in there, he changed his mind. I should explain that this is set in the 90s, where meters are still a thing. <laughs> he came back out through the colored plastic streamers with a six-pack of seltzer and a potted baby spruce. The spruce was dressed for Christmas, but it was only October. When he climbed back into my cab, it was right into the passenger seat. Usually only the very old or the very tall did this. He settled the suitcase between his feet and the baby spruce between his knees. Then he turned on me, eyes crackling with an indistinct glory, a light that was infectious if perhaps not thoroughly sound. He started. I try to honor every coincidence, you understand. Here he put his hand on my shoulder. I looked at the hand. He took the hand away and continued. This was meant to be an auspicious day for me. I still hope I might recover it. I have at least one sturdy friend in Canada, he said, though this friend seems no longer in the habit of picking up the phone. Doesn't this seem like a fine night for it, though? Bless you. For what? I asked. For Canada, he said. It's only a squeak past the border, St. Kitts. Tonight, I said. You mean this morning? This very morning. This very morning, I think, would make for an expensive coincidence for you, my friend. We were, one, we were one of only two cars in the lot. I tried to see through the windows of Lloyd's whether my fare had knocked somebody down or been the cause of some other commotion, but all appeared normal. In any case, I said, I can't drive you across the border. You ever tried? he asked. It against the law? Probably it's against the law, I said, I don't know. In any case, I won't get a fare back from way up there. Of course, I will pay your fare back. I've already factored that into expense. Also, I said, I am not carrying my passport. Well, we can make a detour for your passport. We can factor that into expenses too. I told him that would make for a very long detour for us both. He seemed to understand. He stroked the little spruce in thought as if it were substitute for a beard. Okay, he said. Say you drive me to the border, am I then within my legal rights to walk over on my own two feet? I'm sure that's allowed, I said, but I don't make the rules. Mother Maria, what a fuss. In California, you want to go to Mexico? You just walk behind the fried chicken place and there it is. Bienvenido, a 12-year-old with a gun who just nods at you. Bienvenido. The airport would be cheaper, I offered. Cheaper and faster, I bet there's a dozen flights going up there come 6 a.m., 
I said, though in fact I had no idea. You don't heed the news, he said. Could you look at my face, please? I looked at his face. Who with this face can trust airports these days? And fact is, I never fly when I can help it, especially never east. Flying against time, crazy. West isn't so bad, you only fly west, you're ahead on time. Your whole life could be one long stretch of daylight. Look, all right, I know it doesn't exactly work that way, but you try explaining to me why not. But I was too tired to explain to him why not. There's a train too, I said feebly. A train goes every day. The trains are presently on strike, he said. I had no answer for that. It was not known to me whether or not the trains were on strike. A woman's face appeared at the passenger window. She tapped on the glass with fake jeweled fingernails. My, my fare waved at the running meter and shooed her away before I could intervene. Forget the train, he said to me. Forget the airport. It has to be now while I have the amplitude. The once drowned man closed his eyes in burdened patience. Why are you trying to throw away a lucrative fare? You have kids to pick up? No. You got a man who's going to give you some trouble if you don't come home in time to make him breakfast? I knew the sensible answer to this was yes. I told him no. I make you nervous, that it. No, I said, and this was a half-truth. My mother drove cabs. She kept a gun bulldog-clipped under the driver's seat. This in a country where people were less in the habit of shooting each other. My fair shook his head. You don't think I'm good for it, he said. Listen, I believe in good faith. I live in accordance with those words, in good faith. But I appreciate that not everyone can afford to operate on the same principles. Hard times breed hard feelings. Tell me, how many miles is it, here to there? I said I guessed it was at 3.50. The man fished a bill clip from an inside pocket of the shabby jacket. 3.50, he repeated. So as a show of my good faith, I am going to advance you for 200 miles. That's about what I have on my person. In five hours, the banks will open and we'll settle up for the rest. Plus the same again for your return, word of honor. The banks, I said. What's wrong with an ATM? A what? You don't have a bank card? Plastic? He gave me a wounded look. The world doesn't run on plastic, he said. It runs on paper. Paper and gasoline. He riffled all the larger bills out of his wallet, folded them over, and held them out. Um, anyway, eventually he convinces her to drive him to Canada. Once we got onto the I-90, the once drowned man let out a long breath I wasn't aware he'd been holding. He rubbed his palms into eyes leaded by decades of bad sleep. Then he rolled down the window and breathed some more. This is fine air, isn't it? And this is a nice, nice thing you're doing for me, he said. You want to know the nicest thing anybody said to me and I don't know how long? The dentist told me I have an uncomplicated mouth. <laughs> and he didn't even mean that stuff wasn't going wrong in there, just that whatever was going wrong was fairly garden variety stuff. That's the nicest thing and I don't know how long. And however uncomplicated it was, it still hurt like all hell, let me tell you. Makes me tired. Say, what about you? What are you tired of? And I knew well enough that this was just anxious talk, conversational colk, but there was so much highway between here and Canada, 
and while I hoped he'd eventually drop off into sleep and stay dropped off for most of it, I figured it couldn't hurt to give him a real answer. I wanted easy feelings for the waking hours. We were only just past the bedroom communities to the bedroom communities. I don't know if there's a better name for those, but they make me uneasy. So I said, this. This place makes me tired. These places, he said. Looking out of the window at the corrugated cement noise barriers, these places don't even exist. I kept thinking on it. What else tired me? Fairs offering me drugs instead of money. Fairs offering me sex instead of money. Fairs acting like fairs instead of people making me think of people as fairs. Fairs who asked me to drive them way out to those box store outlets and have me wake in the parking lot while they bought build-it-yourself bunk beds and four-gallon jugs of fake syrup. Speaking in gallons, that tired me. Ounces and yards and miles, the entire fucking imperial system. Fairs trying to guess where I was from and guessing wrong always. Sometimes I said yes to places I'd never set a foot in, just so I didn't have to listen to a stranger tell me about what they thought they knew about my, my actual home country. Another thing that caused my mind to drift into the growlers. Did I say these things aloud? I suppose I must have. Because a little farther along, the once-drowned man surprised me by guessing my home correctly. No one ever had before. I didn't spring to either confirm or deny, and he didn't try to tell me what he knew about the place. But the air in the cab felt slightly charged after this, as though he'd said Rumpelstiltskin. You don't have much of an accent, he said. I wouldn't know. I said. I have forgotten the language in which my parents spoke to me as a child, he said. The language in which I learned to count and tell time. How is this possible when I have sufficiency in so many other languages now? He reached forward to touch the saint on the dashboard, but did not touch. You're Catholic, he said. It isn't mine, I told him. I'll leave it there. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>